Well, good evening. It's a, it really is a joy and a privilege for me to be able to bring the Word of God to you this evening. And so thank you for that. I'm really excited to have this opportunity. And so without further ado, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to the book of Jude. Go ahead and turn there, if you will, the book of Jude. And while you're turning there, you may be asking the question to yourself, why did Levi choose to preach on the book of Jude? I mean, after all, there are a lot of books in Scripture, right? There's 66 books, some of them very, very large, some of them very small. And out of all those books, why would I choose the book of Jude? I mean, the book of Jude is kind of a small book. It's oftentimes, indeed, a forgotten book. We recognize it's part of the New Testament, right? But we sometimes just kind of don't even remember to read it or to quote it or to even think about it. And really, I think that's why I felt led to preach on the book of Jude. But we're going to do, when I have the opportunity to speak, whenever that is, we're going to work our way through the book of Jude in a series. And tonight we're looking at the first four verses of Jude. And I chose to preach on Jude, I think, because in our minds, at least for me, it's oftentimes a forgotten book. Because when I, as growing up, you know, I, I never heard a sermon series on Jude. I don't know if you've heard a series on Jude. I don't know if you've heard a Sunday school uh, session on Jude or not, but for me, I never heard a series on it, and I never even heard a sermon on the book of Jude. And so for me, it's certainly a forgotten book in my mind, because I just haven't studied it. And so I thought this is a perfect opportunity for me to really try to understand the epistle of Jude and to bring it before you. So we're reading Jude verses 1 through 4, and I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. Jude verses 1 through 4. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this evening to hear your Word. Lord, I pray that you would work in each one of us as we seek to understand it. And Lord, pray that you would accomplish what you want to do through it this evening in each and every one of us. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The way that I'd like to approach beginning our study of the book of Jude is I want to establish three things about it. The first thing when we're studying an epistle, right, the first thing we need to do is we need to figure out who wrote the book. Second thing we need to do is we need to figure out who the book is written to. And then thirdly, we have to figure out 
what the purpose of the book is, right? Because Jude is not a theological treatise. Jude is not a book that you would find at a, you know, a local Christian bookstore or something. This is a letter. And it's a letter to certain people in a certain historical context. And those things are all important if we're going to try to understand what the Lord has to say in this book. And so first of all, we have the author. As we seek to understand this book, the author. We see in verse 1, if you're looking at the text, that Jude identifies himself by the name Jude. And then he says that he is a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now, the fact that he says he's a brother of James is really interesting because if we flipped over to Matthew, and I'm going to do that really quick, you don't have to. If we flipped over to Matthew chapter 13, we read about Jesus when he entered into Nazareth. And in Nazareth, Jesus was not well received as the Messiah. And, of course, Jesus says that's because a prophet is not normally received in his hometown because people grew up with the prophet. And they saw him, you know, as a child. And it's very difficult for people to get over that and and recognize the prophetic nature of the person. And so Jesus is at Nazareth, and the people are talking about him. And in verse 55, it says, these, these are the people speaking, they say, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And so here we see that Jesus had brothers, or really what we could call half-brothers. Because while they were born of Mary, of course, they weren't born of God. The father was Joseph instead of the father. And so what we see here is Jesus had four brothers. Two of them are James and Judas. And Judas, another name for Judas is Jude. Jude is like the English name for the Greek word Judas. And so they're the same thing. In the original Greek. And so what we can conclude from that is that Jude, because he identifies himself as the brother of James, who wrote the epistle of James in the New Testament, I think we can rightly conclude that Jude here, the author of this epistle, is the half-brother of Jesus. Now I think that's interesting, that Jude is the half-brother of Jesus, because notice what Jude does here then. In verse 1, when he's identifying himself, he doesn't come out and say, Hey, I'm Jude, brother of Jesus and James. He says, I'm Jude, a servant of Jesus and brother of James. What Jude is doing here is he is elevating Jesus. He is saying, just because I'm Jesus' brother does not mean that I'm anything special or that I should be honored. Rather, I am a servant of my brother Jesus. He is higher than me. And so right away we see Jude's humble nature in this text as he wants to set himself forward as someone with authority, but not nearly to the same authority of Jesus. So Jude, a servant of Jesus and brother of James. That's our author. That's the guy who wrote this whole epistle. And so as we go through this epistle, you're going to see why that's important. It doesn't, uh, it's not as important today, but as we continue on, it's going to get really, really good to know. So Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And then we get the recipients of this letter. The recipients are those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. We've got three very peculiar, set, distinct 
attributes for Jude's recipients. And I want to go through each of those here because I think they're really, really important. And it's going to matter when we get to the purpose of Jude's epistle in a second. First, he says that his recipients are those who are called. Those who are called. What does it mean to be called? Well, I think it means that those who are called are those who show up to evening worship. Uh, No, I'm kidding. That's not what it means to be called. Although, uh, anyway, those who are called, we can find out more about that if we consult other parts of the New Testament, particularly uh, 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is discussing this issue of people who are not called and people who are called. What does this mean? He says this, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, verse 22, he says this. This is uh, Paul's words to the Corinthians. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and a folly to Gentiles. But here it is, verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So if we're thinking carefully, as we look at these, these verses of Paul, we can see Paul is contrasting two groups of people. One group is people who are not called, whether Jews or Gentiles, anybody in the world who's not called. To them, Paul says, when the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, it's a stumbling block. It's folly. It's met with hostility. It is met with resistance. That's to those who are not called, whether Jew or Gentile. And then Paul says, but to those who are called, a distinct class of people, to those who are called, Christ, that is the message of the gospel, the power of the message of Christ, is power. And it is wisdom. In other words, to those who are called, the message of Christ is something different. It's not met with hostility. It is not met with retaliation. It's not met with resistance. It is something that changes. It is something that radically transforms them. It's the power of God and it's the wisdom of God to change people. So those who are not called, the message of the gospel is met with resistance. To those who are called, it's the opposite. And so that is what I think Jude has in mind here when he's talking about people who are called. To those who are called, and I think we can rightly infer here that to be called means to be called by God. Now, this, scholars would call this the divine passive. It means that God is the one doing the calling. So to those who are called by God, a distinct class of people, a class of people who have received a calling that other people haven't. And you can pick up on this very quickly, right? When we talk about calling, this is a category of the doctrine of election, right? That beautiful, wonderful teaching of Scripture that God, before the foundation of the world, chose a peculiar people to be his own. It's a gracious action on God's Heart. And so those are the people that Jude is writing to, those who have been elected and called by God. And then he attaches another attribute to these people. They're not just called, but he says they are beloved in God the Father. And 
To understand that a little better, we could say they are loved by God the Father. That maybe clears up a little bit of the grammar there. Loved by God the Father. And I think it's interesting that Jude adds this. Because when we think about election and calling by God, sometimes it can tend to be sort of abstract, philosophical, theological, and it can sometimes feel, like, feel a little bit like a capriciousness on God's part. In other words, it can sometimes seem like when we think about calling and, and why some are called and some are not called, we can begin to have this idea that God did the calling because he was rolling dice in heaven or he was at the divine casino and was just randomly picking people with no reason. And I think Jude is adding this here because what he wants to stress, what he wants to sort of highlight when he's bringing into the minds of his readers this idea of the calling of God is he wants them to understand that this calling is not a result of the rolling of dice, but it is the result of the love of God. A special love that God has for his chosen people. They are loved by God the Father. You can read about this a lot in Calvin's Institutes. Calvin says um, that the reason in the scriptures, the reason why God has chosen his people is not found in Scripture except the reason that he did it because he loved them. And we don't know all the details behind that. There's some mystery in that. But the Scriptures are clear. God has done what he's done for his people because he has loved them. And that's what Jude's highlighting here, I think. So Jude's recipients are those who are called, those who are beloved by God the Father. And thirdly, They are those who are kept for Jesus Christ. They are those who are kept for Jesus Christ. This is no small teaching here. This is a massive amount of teaching in just these couple of words, kept for Jesus Christ. If we want to expand upon this, right? Because we have to expand on all of these attributes. Jude is just rattling them off like it's second nature. But if we want to expand on these attributes, we can flip over to another place in Scripture. And I like to flip to John chapter 10. And you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but I want to read John chapter 10, a couple of verses here to help fill in the gaps in what Jude means by being kept for Jesus Christ. This is verse 25 of John 10. Jesus is talking with the Pharisees. He says, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now these are some strong, clear statements that Jesus is making in John chapter 10. And what Jude has in mind here when he talks about being kept 
for Jesus Christ is he's talking about what we call in theology the preservation of the saints. Uh, the preservation of the saints. That there's this idea in Scripture that we can find all over the place that God is preserving His people in the faith. That God is always working to protect His people from evil and to keep anyone from snatching them out of the hand of His salvation that is once for all. Now there are, of course, different ways of understanding that. Some have come to the passages of Jesus here and they've said, well, you know, uh, no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. For sure, absolutely. But you can jump out if you want to. Or you can fall out if you sin too much. And while I think that's a clever loophole in Jesus' words... I don't think that's what he's saying. He says, my sheep will never perish. And praise God for that, right? Because we can have an immense amount of assurance knowing that our salvation begins and ends with God. Now, that is what Jude wants to highlight for his recipients, right? He's saying to those who are called, where does salvation start? It starts with election. It starts with calling. It starts with God. And then you're loved by God. And then he ends it by saying, you are kept for Jesus Christ. It begins and ends with God. It's all grace. It's nothing on us. God doesn't, God doesn't wait for other people to come into the faith and then keep them in the faith. No, you've only got half of it there. God doesn't bring people into the faith and then give them enough grace to stay in the faith if they do it. Then you've got still half of it. But I love what Jude's doing here. He's got both ends capped with the wonderful, gracious work of God. To those who are called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And so that's Jude's recipients right there. And that's going to be important for understanding the purpose of Jude's epistle here in just a second. So in verse 2, he gives them a greeting. And then in verse 3, we get the purpose for Jude's epistle. The reason why Jude wants to write this. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So we see Jude actually had a reason that he wanted to write to his recipients, whoever they are, that was different than what he actually ended up doing. You see, originally he says, I wanted to write something about our common salvation. Namely, he wanted to write a treatise on salvation. Now, I think that would have been great. I would have loved to have studied a treatise on salvation written by the half-brother of Jesus. I think that would be great. But, in the providence of God, that's not what ended up happening. Jude ended up doing something else. He said, I wanted to write you a treatise on salvation. By the way, I think his treatise on salvation probably would have been the three points that he uses when he addresses his recipients that the three major bullet points of his treatise would have been calling, love, and being kept for Jesus Christ. But that's just speculation on my part. So he wanted to write a, a treatise on common salvation, on the doctrine of how we are saved, but he says, I found it necessary instead to write appealing to you, to contend for the faith. So Jude... He wanted to write something else, and he decides 
at the last minute, actually, you know what? I canceled what I wanted to write. I canceled my book because something else happened. Some more pressing matter has come to my attention that has motivated me to write to you to do this. Namely, to contend for the faith. And what motivated Jude to do that? Well, it seems in verse 4 we see the reason. Verse 4, he says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Certain people crept in. And I think what he's getting at there is they crept in not simply into the community, but they crept into the church. They crept into the fellowship of believers, these false teachers. And they are promoting false doctrine. And what Jude is going to do throughout this epistle is he's going to talk about those false teachers and also mention what their fate is, what the end result is of their false teaching. And we'll look at that more in future weeks. So we're not going to spend as much time on the false teachers now. But know that that's the reason why he's writing. That's why he's concerned. But now it's interesting. He's concerned about false teachers among the believers to whom he's writing. And he was so concerned about it that he said, I found it necessary to write to you to fight for your faith. And I think when he says to fight for your faith, to fight and to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, I think he's got two things in mind. First thing he's got in mind is their own personal faith their own personal adherence to the teachings of Christianity, to the teachings of the apostles, which is orthodox, right understanding of Christianity against the false teachers, a personal adherence to the faith. But then I think he's also got in mind a corporate defense of the faith that is not simply just studying facts for our own personal knowledge, but also understanding the Christian faith well enough to defend it externally as a whole against false teachers. So I think he's got both things in mind here. He says, I found it necessary to write to you to fight for the faith. Now, if you're a thinking person, if you're someone who's been thinking about everything that we have gone through so far here in Jude, you ought to have a question in your mind. And that question is this. Why is Jude concerned? Now, we know that he's concerned about false teachers, right? He says that. We know what he, what he wants his recipients to do, namely to contend for the faith. But why does he find it necessary to write them a letter of warning against the false teachers? I mean, after all, here's why the question should arise. After all, are they not kept for Jesus Christ? Are they not preserved in the faith? Does salvation not begin and end with God? Does not saving faith begin and end with God? Why would he tell them to fight for the faith? If God's sovereign in these matters, why is he writing an epistle to these people telling them to do something? Why is he writing to them a warning? You understand the question? You see what what we're raising here? You see, Jude is not the only place in Scripture where these kinds of questions come up, right? There are all kinds of warnings all over the place in the Scriptures. Or, say, Paul is warning his recipients not to fall away. 
where Paul is saying, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Where the author of Hebrews discusses this issue at length in chapter 6. Where even later in Jude, we're going to see Jude is going to say, keep yourselves in the love of God. Well, wait, wait a minute. Keep yourselves in the love of God? Doesn't it say you are kept in the love of God by something else? How do we, how we deal with this? You see, you see the question here. This is a question of how we harmonize certain parts of Scripture. Now, there are a number of different ways that people try to do this. We've got, first of all, a couple of extremes. You've got one extreme that says, well, we've got, yes, we recognize there are teachings in the Scripture that teach that we are preserved in the faith. And those are more important, and we ignore all the warnings. We're preserved in the faith. You can live however you want. You can do anything you want. You can live any lifestyle you want, because if your name's on the rolls, if you prayed the sinner's prayer, guess what? You are locked in. That's one extreme. To so elevate the preservation that the warnings are basically swept under the rug. These commands by the apostles to, to have us contend for the faith are simply shoved under the rug. But then you've got another extreme, on another side. And that side says, well, you see, you've got all these warnings. And we need to take those warnings seriously. And so preservation will out, gone. We don't need it. And so the preservation text then, in John 10 or in Jude or Romans 8 or wherever else, sort of end up becoming watered down. And they're not taken as seriously as in, I think they should be. And so that's one extreme, to so elevate the warnings that the preservation is gone, that the perseverance of the saints is gone. And I don't think... Beloved, I mean, especially as Reformed people, that we want to be in either of those places. See, we want to take both Jude saying that we are kept in the faith, and we want to take Jude's warnings seriously and hold them both as the Word of God, and hold them both as important and not try to water down either of them. And that's a tough thing. So we have to think about that. What is Jude doing here? What is his understanding? How does this all fit together? How do we understand this? Preserved and warned to contend. Well, I think we need to recognize one basic principle taught in God's Word. And that is this. That the Word of God never returns empty, but always accomplishes that which God wills it to do. You think about that first of all with the doctrine of, of saving faith, of the teaching of how we get faith. As Reformed people, right, we don't believe that faith is something we do. We believe faith is a gift from God. It's something God does. It's something the Holy Spirit brings about in our hearts. It's not something we do. It's something God does. And yet, in the Scriptures, there are calls to believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Well, if belief is something God does, if belief is something that the Word of God accomplishes through the work of the Spirit, well, doesn't that make the calls to the gospel fake? Doesn't that make the commands to believe not really commands? Well, no, of course not. They are real commands, but they're commands that 
only come to fruition because God works. Because God works through His Word to accomplish what He wants to do. When the Gospels preach to those who are not called, guess what? Resistance is met. When the Gospels preach to those who are called, well, there's no resistance. Because the Spirit is at work. The Spirit is changing hearts. And that doesn't nullify the fact that the commands to believe are still real commands. They're just commands that God has to fulfill in us. Now we take that same principle, those same principles and we apply them to this doctrine of the perseverance, the being kept for Jesus. We are told that we are kept for Jesus Christ by Jude, but that doesn't mean that the Word of God is void of commands. Namely, in this case, the command to contend for the faith. And what we can see in Scripture if we apply the principles is that God's Word... Namely, these warnings that we're seeing, contend for the faith. Don't do this, don't do that. Work your salvation out in fear and trembling. All these things that we find in Scripture. Those are commands in God's Word. And for God's people, He works through those commands to keep His people in the faith. He works through those commands. We don't keep ourselves in the faith. God doesn't just give us enough grace to keep ourselves within the fold of Jesus' sheep. But the Spirit works to do that for us. And He does it through the Word. Because God's Word has a purpose. And God knows the purpose. And He always works it to fruition. God's Word never returns empty. And it always accomplishes what God wants it to do. Okay? So that's why we see Preservation text, and we see warning text. Now, that is the purpose of the book of Jude. All right, I want you to get that here. The book of Jude is written to believers, to those who are called, loved, and kept. And Jude is issuing them a divine warning to contend for the faith, both personally and corporately. And to defend the faith particularly against false teachers. And we'll look and expand upon this idea and look at those false teachers and what they're teaching and the end result of that as we continue through the book of Jude. But what I want to ask at this point is, what does this mean for us? My, there's a lot of teaching here. Right? There's a lot of meat here. And I could probably preach an entire series just on that first verse. <laughs> there's so much stuff there. And it's so deep and so full of all kinds of things. But we're going to stop here and ask, what do these first four verses of Jude mean for us? How, how do we apply these to our lives? What can we glean from God's word? Well, I got two things for you. Two things. The first thing is that all of us as believers, right? This epistle is written to those who are called, loved, and kept. Are we called, loved, and kept? Yes, we are as believers, right? So all of us. As people called, loved, and kept are required to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. In the Greek, it literally says to fight for the faith. To fight for the faith. Now, if we're going to fight for the faith, if we're going to contend for the faith, right? we, we don't want to just say that. It's a nice slogan to put on a billboard or something, but we want to understand what exactly it means to contend. Well, the first thing we got to do if we're going to contend for the faith, the way Jude is telling us to do here, is we need to first of all know the faith. 
We need to know what the Christian faith teaches. Right? We can't fight for something. We can't contend for a belief. We can't contend for our faith in something if we don't know what that something is. We need to know the Word of God. We need to know what the Christian faith professes as true. And you know what that means? Is That means some work. And that means we need to study God's Word. I'm not saying we all need to become professional theologians or we all need to read big volumes of theology or we all need to learn Hebrew and Greek, even though if you did learn Hebrew and Greek, I'd be very happy. But that is not what we're all supposed to do, right? We just need to study the Word. We need to be Psalm 1 Christians if we're going to contend for the faith, right? What does Psalm 1 say? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the instruction of the Lord. And on that instruction, he meditates day and night. That's talking about the Word. We need to know the Word if we're going to defend our faith and the Christian faith as a whole. Now, I recognize right off the bat that for some of us, this command to contend for the faith and therefore know what the faith actually is, is easier for some people than others. Right? For example, Pastor Adam and I very much love to study theology. Well, it's a passion we have. We enjoy reading about this. And I know other people here too, too. We love this kind of stuff. It comes naturally to us. When we hear this, we've got to know the faith. We've got to study the word. We've got to contend for the faith. Man, that's awesome. That's exactly what we like to do. It's like God is commanding us according to our nature. It's great. But then there are, I recognize right away, and I'm very sensitive to this, that there are other people who don't have that passion, who don't like to study theology, who don't like to read Christian books, and who maybe even don't even like to read the Bible, who are Christians, who are professing Christians, who don't like to do these things. And I recognize that that is a place that many people find themselves. And I think what we need to recognize is that if we are in that position, if we are in that place spiritually, we need to heed the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians where he says to his Corinthians, he's chastising them here, and he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready. If we don't enjoy reading the Scripture, if we don't make it a priority in our lives, if we're not doing it, it's like we're drinking from a spiritual bottle dribbling milk when Paul is saying look guys you need to be eating steak you need to have a spiritual hunger for the deep word of God author of Hebrews says the same thing for by this time you ought to be teachers yet you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God you need milk not solid food he uses the same imagery there as Paul we don't want to be Christians who are content to use a spiritual bottle. We want steak. We want the meat. We want the teaching of God's word. And so if that's not us today, we need to heed these warnings and we need to say, you know what? I need to cultivate this desire if I don't have it. Because this is what the word calls me to do. So that's the first thing, right? We need to contend for the faith. That is contending for our own personal faith and for 
faith as a whole. And we do that primarily by knowing the faith and being ready to give an answer for the hope that's within us. And that requires the diligent study of Scripture, which is what the Word of God calls us to as Christians. And then secondly, what else can this text tell us today? Secondly, we can have, as believers, we can have a blessed assurance of our salvation. One that leads us to a greater love of God and greater service to Him. So you see, the first thing that we can take away from today is something we need to do, right? Something we need to do to contend for the faith and those things we need to do in order to contend for the faith. And the second thing here is something we can know, something we can take to the bank. And that is that we can have a blessed assurance of our salvation. There is no greater joy for God's people. That's you and me. There is no greater joy that we can have than to know that our salvation begins and it ends with God. It does not begin with God and end with us. It does not begin with us and end with God. God is the one who caps both ends. We are saved by the grace of God and the grace of God alone. Praise God for that. We can have an amazing assurance. An amazing assurance. And so, just as we close here, let us be in awe of the great faithfulness of God. Be in awe that we are not saved, we are not called, we are not kept because we are faithful. But we are kept because Almighty God is greatly faithful. Let's pray. Most gracious Father, we recognize today that we are sinners and that we cannot do anything to save ourselves. But Lord, we thank you for your word, for this message of Jude, very brief but very powerful, where he tells us that you are the one who is the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, we pray that you would help us to to glean an amazing assurance of our salvation through recognizing that great truth. And Lord, pray that in a response to that, in a response to that assurance of our salvation, of knowing that you're the one who accomplished it, that you're the one who sent Jesus to do what we couldn't do, and that you're the one who gave us that faith in Jesus is what justifies us. Knowing that, Lord, give us the passion to contend for the faith as you tell us us in Jude. Give us that passion to not simply be content with milk, but to be content with meat, and indeed to hunger for the meat of your word. Lord, I pray you would work that in each and every one of us, and that we would be fueled by that passion to better serve you and to better proclaim your gospel to the watching world around us. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Our hymn of response is number 32 in your hymnals. Great is thy faithfulness. Number 32. Please stand.